Chinese government is drifting more and more away from uh, liberal democracy. National and, climate um, pledges put the world on track for a global temperature rise of about 2.7 degrees American by the end of the century. corporations are not leaving China. Every generation has something to fight when for. When we look at Europe today, we, we hardly have time to take a breath and, and look into <laughs> the future. Coming to you from the banks of the Danube, you are listening to the Vienna Coffee House Conversations podcast with me, Ivan Vevoda. Welcome to our digital salon at Vienna's Institute for Human Sciences, the IWM. In each episode of Coffee House Conversations, I'll be joined by Europe's future fellows and leading thinkers from around the world. We'll be probing their current research topics through discussion, challenge, and exploration. Listen as we explore the ideas, debates, and encounters that will shape the future of democracy in Europe and around the world. In this podcast, I have the great pleasure and honor to be talking with Europe's Futures Fellow, Oana Popescu-Zamfir. She is a former State Secretary for EU Affairs in Romania and Director of one of the most prominent think tanks in Romania, the Global Focus Center. And we will be talking about democratic resilience amid the crises and disruptions of the 21st century world. I'm Juana Popescu-Zanfir. I currently run the Global Focus Center, which is a foreign policy and security and good governance think tank based in Romania, but with a regional and transatlantic focus. I'm a former foreign policy advisor to the current Deputy Secretary General Mircea Joana when he was president of the Romanian parliament. I also used to be programs director with the Aspen Institute in Romania, and before all that, a foreign affairs journalist. I currently focus on democratic resilience, hybrid threats, risk analysis, and uh, the changing models of governance and global order. I'm also one of the founding members of uh, PLUS, which is a civic party in Romania that was born out of the technocrat government in 2016 and currently run by Renew Europe chairman Dacian Cholos. During my fellowship at IWM, I will try to use that political experience together with my analytical experience to look at the mechanisms of democratic resilience. And the reason I'm going to do that is that I think as war becomes too costly, too risky, and so more unacceptable to populations around the world than it used to be, we will be seeing low-intensity, continuous conflict in our societies, at least in the coming decades. Briefly put, world powers will seek to use all measures short of war, whether that means trade, financial and economic tools, political influence, disinformation, cyber attacks, to undermine one another so that they would avoid open conflict. And I think primarily what's going to happen is that our weaknesses will be used by our competitors against us. So resilience becomes important. Why democratic resilience? Because I also believe that with the growing US-China rift, we are faced with the competition of systems of values and models of governance. And 
I think that at the end of the day, if you have to choose, you'd rather be born in a democracy than an autocracy. So preserving the resilience and, and the health of our democracy is going to be a component part of the global competition, of our performance on the global stage, as well as obviously a measure of how well democracy can deliver internally in terms of people's expectations of good governance. The think tank that I lead, Global Focus Center, has elaborated the Democratic Resilience Index. We just launched it in Brussels together with the European Commission and the German Marshall Fund. And we look at around 90 cross-cutting issues in political systems, media and civil society, economy, foreign affairs, and we look at the institutional and, and structural makeup of these systems, how well they have resilience embedded in them. We also look at elite agency because very often it's not just a matter of institutions being able to preserve our democracy. It's also a matter of leaders being able to do the same thing and being committed to the same goal. We also look at the crisis triggers. So more precisely, what kind of, of critical junctures or path dependencies might cause democratic backsliding and the crisis buffers, um, that is the sometimes complex mechanisms that are uh, built within societies that help them resist backsliding, recover from backsliding, bounce forward. And, and so we increasingly know why countries backslide, but I don't think we know enough what makes them be able to oppose backsliding and how we can contribute, whether as decision makers or, or donors or the international community, to support them. Taking it from there, I will try to look at the resilience drivers that can help us as societies to perhaps reform our approach to a, a genuinely inclusive, genuinely representative democracy that is able to include all voices and heed them while at the same time sticking to the fundamental principles that we hold dear. Welcome, Anna. It's great to have you. It's great to see you, Ivan, and be with you. So starting with the international relations aspect, you talk about a fundamental clash of systems occurring in the 21st century. The American president has discussed the China threat in similar terms. In Europe, there is sometimes a reluctance to adopt the same framing. Why is that and who is right? And let me mention, of course, we all know that President Biden is organizing a democracy summit or a summit of democracies in a virtual format where some countries have been invited and others have not been, most notably, for example, Hungary and Turkey. Actually, it's nothing particularly new. The international system has always been in a competitive state. I, I, I think that's pretty much its natural state. And to, to a large extent, countries that, unlike Europe, have gone through uh, protracted periods of conflict tend to handle chaos and conflict much better than we do. So essentially what's happening to us in Europe is I think uh, we are still in denial 
We've been focusing for decades on this uh, peace project, which is the European Union. And we're having trouble accepting conflict now. But what's happening is that unlike the uh, immediate aftermath of the um, Cold War and then also World War II, actually, to go further back in time, now we have competition. We lived for quite a while being able to focus inward, being able to focus on a cooperative paradigm, on building links and connections among ourselves in Europe in a way that would make war among us here on the continent impossible. And we didn't really have to focus too much on the rest of the world because, frankly, there was not much happening in the rest of the world that could challenge what we were building here in Europe. Now there is. With the emergence of developing countries like China or the conflict and the unrest that comes with other less developed countries, and I'm now thinking of Asia and Africa and the whole phenomenon of migration that's very much based on delayed development, let's call it that. Well, that all cannot happen in an all cooperative paradigm. So we are now a little bit like the rabbit caught between the, the car's headlights. We're paralyzed because we don't know how to handle this new situation. And the new situation is not just the US and China experiencing this new type of rivalry. It's two competing systems. And one is revisionist. And to some extent, that is uh, legitimate. It's countries that are now having a larger impact on the world and overall. And so they claim to have more of an influence on how the world is organized. And the other system, ours, essentially, that the Western system seeks to keep the status quo. Now, the problem is the revisionist one also seeks to revise democracy as we know it, liberal rights and freedoms as we know them. It, it takes a, a very community-oriented view in the sense that obviously their priority is self-development. And, and when they say self-development, that is for themselves as a nation, not necessarily on an individual level, because we know that in, in many of these countries, the levels of inequality are very, very high. So that's happening with the revisionist system, whereas the system that seeks to resist that, the, the Western uh, liberal order, on the one hand, doesn't have a new narrative to uh, propose for these current times. And in some situations, it's so focused on individual rights that essentially it says to be, it, it seems to be saying, hey, the hell with everything else. And then society becomes a competition uh, among individuals. So I think that is all these tensions is, is, are something that is unfamiliar to us. And we tend to be focusing very much on trying to, to keep that from happening, on, on de-escalation, on, on, on trying to revert to something that we know. And I don't think there is, there is any way to get there. So the, the only way forward for Europe is probably to learn to deal with this new situation and move faster in the direction of trying to come up with how exactly we can keep what we have been building for decades here, while perhaps also serving as a model for the rest of the world, which in many ways does seek to emulate us. 
Indeed, uh, the European Union is sort of awaking from a slumber that uh, was created during the Cold War with all of its complications, of course, but with the shield of American security over Europe, Europe was allowed to think more of societal issues and development rather than building up armies, to speak very simply. The fact that it has named itself this latest EU commission as geopolitical is, in a sense, revealing of the understanding that the world is changing. And suddenly, we are out of the Cold War and into, if the metaphor is right, into somewhat of a warmer atmosphere where the kinds of threats that you have been talking about are important. I mean, as you said, I mean, wars and Europeans have, quote unquote, forgotten about them for good reason. And yet look at what's happening in Ethiopia today or in Yemen. These are all out wars and nobody really wants to stop them. And and we seem to be unable to do that. So the, the, the following question may be then, is there a danger of being too optimistic regarding the diminishing role of warfare, which it is not in other parts of the world, but clearly here as a political strategy. And what's happening between China and Taiwan at the moment, again, or the Ukrainian-Russian border, or what's uh, happening at the Belarus-Polish-Lithuanian border, these are all extreme points of tension, which may not turn out into full-out war, we hope not, but they're veering dangerously near uh, to something like that. Or, for example, the spite that we have between India and Pakistan, both rival nuclear powers, but also let's not forget the India-China armed conflict up in the Himalayas at thousands of meters of height. So there are also a number of societies globally experiencing these conflicts that appear to be very intractable. What does Europe need to do from your vantage point to be able to take a grip on this, these issues while it defends a rules-based international and domestic order? At the end of the day, especially in a competitive global system, the, the use of force and the threat to use force is the ultimate deterrent. So that is, I believe, one of the reasons why the the most recent Global Peace Index of, of 2021 shows that militarization has been on the rise. The level of ongoing conflict has been diminishing to some extent, but then so has peace. Uh, peace in the world has deteriorated for the ninth year in a row, although by a very small margin. However, Clearly, we're going to have to deal with territorial claims, with not just the occasional skirmishes, but actually also the, the looming danger of nuclear war or conventional war between not just great powers, but also regional powers. So all of these things will continue to be part of the toolbox of both countries seeking to affirm themselves on the international stage and those seeking to uh, preserve their dominance. Uh, what I think is, the, is, is uh, new these days is, is actually that given that the the highest level of threat is that of a conflict between the world's greatest powers and that is the US and China and we know we know the pace at which China is militarizing and and its investments in in its military then pretty much just like during the cold war i think we have an avoidance 
of, of major conflict. So what we are seeing increasingly these days is not just the usual and, and the familiar war by proxy, so regional tensions that seek to test the resolve of the opponent and to test the waters to see what would happen if. I think we also see very much below the threshold non-kinetic means of waging war, so to speak, so that in legal terms, under in the international system of norms and regulations, it cannot be branded as war. And so it is hard to justify a response that would be military in nature. And then what, what we see is increasingly the kind of hybrid threats that are uh, becoming more and more familiar to us, attempts to undermine our societies from within. But that shouldn't, you know, that shouldn't blind us to the fact that the ultimate threat does remain, let's say, military annihilation, even if it's just theoretical. So what Europe needs to do, I think, is a two-pronged response. On the one hand, it really needs to understand that it cannot rely only on the United States for its defense. And the discussions around European strategic autonomy, I'm sure, are a step in that direction. The only worrying thing is if we're going to get our act together faster than the challenges that are catching up with us. On, on the other hand, I think we need to also acknowledge the fact that we're not going to be able to be self-reliant too soon. So strengthening the transatlantic alliance and, and really trying to understand what is our place in, in a world that is very much defined by the US and China. However, Europe is really not a negligible actor. So what is its role in this, in this new landscape and how can we strengthen our work with the United States in a way that would serve both our interests and, and theirs. Oh, absolutely. But let me just come back to these nonviolent options that are available to states and non-state actors in regards to threats coming from others. And obviously, cyber warfare is one of them, or what we call hybrid warfare. In fact, just yesterday, the head of the British Secret Services, Richard Moore, or head of MI6, talked about exactly that, and he put it really at the top of his list of threats, and that is the use of advanced technologies. And he specifically mentioned Russia and China that are investing enormous amounts of money and development potential into artificial intelligence, quantum computing, synthetic biology. These are things that he mentioned, and he said if we're not in in this case in Britain, but I would add in the European Union and the United States following. So we have basically a landscape shift in the threat perceptions in what states can do, as you said, non-kinetic hybrid warfare. How do you see this? Are we on par in terms of where Europe is, knowing that Silicon Valley, of course, is not something that is existing in Europe and that Europe is now trying to uh, catch up and do more in that regard? I think we can be. We're not at this point. Unfortunately, few uh, European countries are investing in R&D as much as we should under the circumstances. But it wouldn't be very difficult for us to catch up if we decide to do so. On the other hand, I think we have some really good 
experience and a good track record in how we can be a standard setter, not just for the continent, but worldwide. Um, if, if we look at just the uh, uh, GDPR and, and how so many countries around the world have had to adopt the same set of standards, because obviously the European market is important and um, they have every interest to work with Europe, so they had to um, adopt the, those standards and then they, uh, they use them wider than just Europe. And, and that's not necessarily one of you know, our uh, most successful uh, endeavors. I think we can, we can very well do the same when it comes to regulating the online space, making it a truly informative and, and safe space rather than a space for disinformation. Um, and manipulation. We can absolutely, I think, do the same when it comes to artificial intelligence and maximizing the opportunities that it offers and minimizing the risks that it that it brings. And I think that this has to be a priority. The fact that we are dealing with, with the potential conflict of such proportions between the US and China makes the avoidance um, of conflict precisely because of its potential global ramifications, a very important dimension for the near future and also, I believe, the distant future as well. So we are going to keep seeing influence operations, elections interference, cyber operations, different attempts of, um, of stoking instability in our societies, using corruption um, against us to undermine our institutions and, and the confidence of citizens in government and political institutions. I think we are increasingly going to see the media, social media and technology being used against our own societies. And what's making it very difficult and compounding these challenges is that then we actually end up fighting not an enemy that is outside of our borders, but being in some sort of a conflict with our own societies. And that makes it extremely difficult to, um, to manage the, the situation. And again, what we're dealing with to a large extent is ideological war, is an, an, an alternative a competition between two different systems of, of government and frankly of, of values and of uh, organizing society. And what we sometimes miss to see is that the war really starts within our own societies. The enemy is only there to use our own lack of resilience against us. The strings are not necessarily pulled in Moscow or in Beijing. The strings are most often pulled from within our societies. I do think that this is, this is essentially the the focal point for for european institutions for the for the near future for member states and that is how do we look inside ourselves and identify where we have been falling short and 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 try to reduce the the social discontent and polarization and inequalities in a way that would make us less vulnerable to external interference. Coming up in part two, Ivan and Oana discuss how to measure democratic resilience in this new world of hybrid threats.
you are conducting through your think tank project uh, looking at an index exactly on these issues of, of democratic resilience. As we see within the European Union, we could sort of transpose the model and say there are competing views of societal organization with the illiberal approaches of certain countries and the uh, attempt to contravene the independence of the judiciary, especially in Hungary and, and Poland. Tell us about this project on democratic resilience. You have tried to assess elite behavior and attitudes as part of this work. Would you say there is such a thing as a democratic culture that can be hard to define and measure? We are we are actually um, looking at both uh, structural and institutional conditions and elite agency. And we are also uh, looking at things that these two dimensions alone uh, might not be able to explain, which is uh, crisis triggers and crisis buffers. That is to say specific uh, national context or local context that could trigger a crisis or could function as buffers in, in kind of holding back democratic backsliding that are just harder to, to measure if we strictly look at structural elements or elite behavior. What we are trying to see is not the quality of democracy, which is something that many other indexes do, but rather how sustainable it is and exactly to what extent there is a democratic culture, both among elites and the general population, that is able to sustain uh, democracy even in the face of these challenges that come both from within and from outside our borders. And I would say we, we start from the idea that we are dealing with fractured communities to a large extent. The main triggers that make people lose their faith in democracy and, and in what it can deliver are to a large extent emotional. They feel uncertain, they feel isolated, and that's not just since the beginning of the pandemic. That, that's been going on for many years now because we, we see polarization, we see political uh, representatives, elected representatives and political parties invest in their core electorate in a sort of uh, cartel and, and division of the market among themselves where each of them is satisfied to invest in their core electorate and much less in the swing voters and the undecided who don't feel that they are being truly represented. We see that there's significant disengagement from actually talking to people directly and, and making them feel part of something. I, I, I believe in Europe in particular, and, and that goes, I think, for the United States as well. Many have lost the feeling that they are at ease and that they are at home within their own communities. People have lost a grip on their daily lives and they, they can't seem to reconnect except through joining parties that, that you're mentioning. Exactly. And they don't feel that they get any support in that. They don't feel that they're getting it from the elites, whom they very much see as disconnected from these challenges. They don't feel that they're getting them from institutions, especially in countries that are less institutionalized than others, which is the case in uh, some of Central Eastern Europe and the Western Balkans and around European borders. And they don't feel that their specific needs um, are served by the governance systems that to, to some extent they have participated in, they have elected their political representatives, but they haven't necessarily um, 
got what they what they were hoping. We started this instrument to try and and, and see and, and map out which are the areas of democratic resilience, what parts of the institutional system or what influencers within society and the elites are the potential leaders in rebuilding back better, if you want, democratically, and which are the areas that are most susceptible to be victims of democratic backsliding. Unfortunately, the largest vulnerabilities are within our own society, so really at a social level where we function much less as societies and more as a collection of scattered individuals. You cannot kind of snatch people away from, from their communities and unless you give them another community to belong to. So the general strategic geopolitical orientation plays a very important role because at the end of the day, when people are faced with a very clear-cut option, would you rather be born and live in a country that's democratic and offers a certain level of prosperity, as is the case in the European Union, or would you rather follow the Russian or Chinese model to the very end? The answer would favor the, the former option. And the other significant driver is economic. I think if we look at Poland, for instance, we see that as the country's government is drifting more and more away from liberal democracy and steering the country in an apparently ultra-conservative direction, the simple fact that Polish citizens are becoming more and more integrated with Europe economically, that they seek not just jobs, but they essentially travel across Europe. They have family there by now. Their standard of living is rising. They are becoming more and more European every day. And to go back to the previous argument on um, geopolitical options, the simple fact that Poland seeks to influence Europe, it wants to, to have a voice within Europe, uh, not outside of it, I think functions as a very strong driver of resilience, even though very often it seeks to do so by opposing the European majority. But it's, it's much more valuable to have Poland within the European Union seeking to influence it rather than have Poland outside of the European Union not caring anymore. And of course, the strong support that membership in the European Union has, you mentioned Poland, but in all other countries, is exactly, I think, a reflex of majorities of public opinion who feel that that is a firewall against extreme backsliding in any direction. So as we come to a close of this podcast, I'd like to... Uh, zero in on Romania, as you said, looking at individual cases. The anti-corruption battle, important work that was done by Minister Makovei back in the time, the fact that uh, Laura Coveshi is now the chief public prosecutor of the European Union, all are testimony to this battle in your country to, to make things better. What is your prognosis, if we can uh, call it that of this grand coalition between the socialists and the liberal pro-European party? Very gloomy, I'm afraid. And I think it very much reflects the reality that has been hidden from view for the past few years, precisely because we 
we did have such a very strong anti-corruption drive. And I think with Laura Kodutakovic's departure for Brussels, we have seen that this was very much driven by a few enthusiastic individuals. It, it was also something that benefited from very wide support at the level of society. And that support comes specifically from the up-and-coming middle class, which is urban, quite influential. It, it has a level of education and income that is above average. And then it's interested in, in driving the country forward and making sure it continues to develop. But I think all of these things have unfortunately succumbed to the reality that we refused to face for a while which is that we are dealing, and not just in Romania, with a sort of state of elite capture and, and even state capture. I think Anne Applebaum was the one who recently wrote an article that was called Autocracy Inc. Incorporated, where she says that we are very much used still to the hierarchical model of autocracy, where we have one autocratic leader at the top trying to uh, build a pyramid through which he, because it's usually a he, imposes his will on the rest of the population. Whereas what we actually have in uh, modern times is uh, a network of corrupt interests a very often political business nexus that seeks to control every institution within the state. And I think that is the case in Romania. What we see now is the happy marriage of both mainstream parties that are allegedly ideologically um, in opposition to each other. But the ideology matters so much less than control over the country's budget. And, and that is really what has drawn them together and has defeated every other reason for adversity. And, and that is the kind of cartelization that I mentioned, which is why I think for a long time to come, now these networks of interest that have been cross-party networks have now very visibly retaken control of all the major institutions and of political representation at both a local and, and a national level. And the only thing this leaves room for is on the one hand, on the positive side, the civic parties that are only learning the, the business of politics. And so it will be very difficult for them to take on a system which is so deeply embedded. And then on the other hand, the nationalists, the populists, the far right, for, for which it is much easier to, to grow and, and, and to catch that part of the population that is uh, now disappointed with the current arrangement. So I'm afraid in the near future, what we will see uh, will be an increasing radicalization of uh, politics. And I'm afraid it will only get better when it gets bad enough that there is really a, a societal move to reverse the current arrangement. The support of partners abroad, again, will be very uh, important because the Romania's pro-Western identity is still, I think, even at a societal level, the most important um, element of resilience on which to rely. So that's, I'm afraid, the only ray of light that I see uh, in an otherwise pretty bleak picture in the years to come. Oana Popescu-Zamfir, thank you for that ray of light at the end, and especially for the global focus that you have given us, but also for the very incisive views on the ways in which post-communist countries extricate ourselves 
from these tendencies, autocratic trends, and attempts at state capture and the nexus of, of politics and, and business. Thanks, Alana, very much. Thank you for the invitation. That concludes this episode of Vienna Coffee House Conversations, the podcast brought to you by the Europe's Futures Programme at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Europe's Futures is a programme of impact, ideas and action for a Europe that rises to the challenges of the 21st century and is undertaken in collaboration with the Erster Foundation. To find out more about our work and research, visit europesfutures.eu.